Good morning. morning. Happy Sabbath. Welcome to Come and Reason Bible Study. Uh, My name is Lori Atkins. I'm filling in, of course, today for Dr. Tim Jennings. He is all the way over in Greece today. Before we start our study, we received sad but incredibly moving and inspiring email this week, and I wanted to share it with you. Uh, It says, my son Reagan, who was 24 years old, died in a car accident on my wife's birthday on March 22nd. He was a first-year med student at the Washington State University School of Medicine and had just been accepted into the Air Force. He was on top of the world, and his trajectory was so exciting for all of us. The loss is horrifying and tragic. The pain is so heavy and unrelenting. But we have the peace that passes all understanding, knowing that his knowledge of an unwavering God of love was sure and steadfast. He often talked of this God to his friends, He engaged me frequently on this topic as he knew how excited I was about this new freedom that I had been experiencing over the past few years. I have been on the journey through Dr. Jennings' books, his lectures, and his lessons, and Reagan had caught the excitement. In his gym bag were both Could It Be This Simple and The God-Shaped Heart. He was reading them both and talking about them to his friends. He sent us a picture of just the open gym bag that showed these books in there. We thank God for this miracle of the soul that liberates and causes us to seek and love him more. We are giving these books to those who will be attending the multiple memorial services over the next few weeks. We know that God will continue to touch lives and change hearts. Reagan's friend said of him at a recent memorial service at the medical school, Reagan could love everyone because he knew how much he was loved by his God. A true testimony of a life touched by a God of love. Thank you so much, Dr. Lyndon Dieter, signed his email. Well, Francesca and I emailed him last night to ask permission to read his email, which, of course, he said yes. But he added this paragraph. He said, I would only add that I firmly believe that God had led me into the truth of the everlasting gospel as presented by Dr. Jennings for this very moment in my life, the sudden loss of my son, Reagan. My wife and I have celebrated in the glorious spirit of love and truth. Had this tragedy occurred five years ago, I shudder to think how I would have reacted. God is good all the time. He has prepared me, my wife, my marriage, my family. He has three remaining siblings for this. Hallelujah. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. I will once again hold close my beautiful boy, presented to me by the God of love who makes beauty out of loss and grief. I have a whole box of Kleenex up here because (laughs) the topic of the lesson, I'm not sure, (laughs) gets any brighter. So let's uh, let's bow our heads and and pray. Father, we pray for this precious Dieter family, and we ask that you come close to them. And as evidenced by Dr. Dieter's testimony, you already have. Um, You've been with them, preparing them for this moment. And uh, we just pray for comfort and strength and courage and um, the ability to to make Reagan's life and even the loss of his life into a ministry. And we know that you are the only one that can do that. Bless our study today. Um, send your Holy Spirit. Pour it out on us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. We're studying Lesson 4 in our quarterly Family Seasons. And the title of this week's lesson is When Alone. 
words? What comes to your mind? How do you think or feel or react when you think about being alone? We're all alone together. <laughs> all alone together. I love it. You love it. I love it. We are alone. Everybody, there's not a single person, even the cool kids at school or whatever, even when you, we've had reunions and it's amazing people say, you were in the cool crowd. No, you were in the Yeah. I wasn't in the cool <laughs> Nobody feels like they're it. We all feel alone. Yeah. So I've got some emotions, reactions. One is discomfort. Lots of people are not comfortable being by themselves. Bliss. Teresa says she loves it. I do. It's just good time with God. I can, yeah. Nobody interferes with my thoughts. Right. Fear or panic. A lot of people are very afraid. Not being alone, dying alone. Freedom, sadness. Maybe it's a combination of all of those. You know, a bunch of folks have never actually experienced prolonged time alone. I was almost 40 years old before I ever really spent any time alone. Now, I had these big, grandiose dreams of being on my own and adulting. I moved out of my house uh, after my sophomore year in college, moved from here down to Florida in Orlando. I rented my own apartment. I got a big job at Florida Hospital. Are you impressed? Sure. Sure. Well, hold the applause. Um, Because, of course, my mom came with me to start this little adventure just to make sure I got all settled and situated. Um, uh, So I spent a total of four days in my own apartment with my mom until the night we came home to our roach motels full of roaches so large that they stuck out both ends of the traps and the roaches or palmetto bugs as they affectionately call them in Florida well the ones that managed to avoid the hotels well they were flying around the room because they have wings so that was a Friday my mom and I spent that Friday night in a Howard Johnson's motel and the next day we went to Sabbath lunch at uh, my mom's oldest and dearest friend who happened to be working in Greensboro Hospital where I was born in the labor and delivery unit and brought me from the nursery to my mom for the first time. So I've literally known her my entire life. And she said, oh, go get your stuff and you can stay with us until you find somewhere else to to live. Well, three years later, (laughs) I still live there. When I graduated from college, and these are folks, my mom and her were nine days apart in age, but they had had children when you're supposed to have children, not when my parents had children. So their kids were already grown and gone, and so I got the glorious combination of a family and independence and freedom by renting a room. Renting a room. I didn't pay anything. Anyway, from them, while I was in college, it's really... I, It changed the trajectory of my life. Just trust me when I say that. Um, Anyway, but I met my husband in college, so I moved out of there, got married, and spent 13 years with my husband. So it wasn't until my late 30s, almost 40, that I experienced what it was truly like to spend time alone. I didn't really like it. 
It was uncomfortable. It was a little too quiet. There weren't enough distractions that could keep me from dealing with probably things that I needed to deal with, opportunities for character growth. And I experienced all the emotions I just talked to you about, discomfort, peace, but I did have peace and quiet, maybe some relief, some sadness, some fear and panic. Saturday's lesson starts out with a rather horrific story about a young woman who was found dead in her apartment, which is tragic in and of itself. But the fact that she had been dead for over 10 years before someone found her made it much worse. I mean, how does that even happen in this day and age of constant contact, constant communication? It seems impossible, right? And so what about the difference between physically being alone and being or feeling lonely? Is there a difference? Are they mutually exclusive? Or can they even be juxtaposed where you actually feel lonelier the more people that are around? How does that work? Things following your mind. Seeing my thoughts on the person in the room. Yeah. Two, three hundred people around. We're going to talk about that in just a second, about how it's all in your mind and its perception. What about all this technology? Aren't we supposed to be much more connected? We have almost innumerable ways of being contacted. I had to go on a cruise recently to literally, that's the only way I knew of that you could unplug and be in a position where people can't get in touch with you. Wendell. You know, I had a parent um, this week say that um, their son, teenager, he says, you know, he's constantly on his device observing but it's all observing. Yes. It's not communion. It's not connection. Right. Yes. And so even though they maybe have more access to others, it's, it's superficial and not communion. You, you are, have some insight into my notes. <laughs> One moment, we're going to get there. And we're gonna ha- I just fear we're going to have a whole generation that literally does not know how to connect and be in communion with each other. We do already have it because those, those are skills that are learned and developed. We talk all the time about the law of exertion in here that to make something stronger, you have to exercise it. And if you don't use it, you lose it. And if you've never used it, I mean, those, those neurons and things are killed off. And there may be a window of opportunity where they can be learned. And once you miss that, I don't know. We'll have to see. There's going to be a consequence anyway. So, are we really in closer communion with each other just because we know more about each other or about what's going on in their lives? Is it possible for me to know everything about what's going on in your house, in your life, what you eat, where you've traveled, or at least whatever you decide to post on social media. And these are the things that get posted. To the point I feel like I really know you. I know what's happening in her family. I know where she went on vacation. I know what she had for dinner. 
but I don't really know you at all. Yes. Have we traded in real substantive companionship and connection and instead settled for this substitute of likes and emoji filled comments in our faux communities that we now call groups or pages? And are there consequences for that new norm? Well, recent studies, and I'm talking about 2018 vintage, show that there clearly are some consequences, and we are reaping them right now. So social science researchers define loneliness as the emotional state created when people have fewer social contacts and meaningful relationships than they would like. These are relationships that make them feel known and understood. So essentially, if you feel lonely, you are lonely. And one out of two Americans now fall into this category. How has social media and camera phones contributed to that e epidemic? Not enough face-to-face. -face. Not enough face-to-face, -face. yes. I think we, social media, the big fall of that is that we compare ourselves to others. Absolutely. I've heard of people <clears throat> having contest to see who has the most friends. Yes. And, and some of them have so many friends, there's no way they even can say hi to all those people. Not a chance. But that's not a meaningful friendship. At exactly. All. And But it, it, it builds up this thing that, oh, they have all these friends. Well, I only have 30. Yes. Well, they be all meaningful in there. <laughs> right. You know? Yes. So I think, I think it just... It sets a, a bar that is totally unrealistic. Agreed. And therefore, we have a tendency as people to compare ourselves to that bar. Yes. And and we see ourselves as failures. Mm -hmm. Now, the other side of that coin <laughs> is that you may have stayed in the same city or county all your life. The other person that has the thousand friends may have been forced to, because of their parents' work, live all over and move every six to 12 months because of where their parents' company took them. So they may literally know that many people because of where they have had to live as a kid when they were growing up. So yeah, there's, there's other dynamics at play there. I, I know people that are in both situations. I mean, they've got a thousand people it's because you know, they were PKs. They had to move all over the place. I know sooner put down roots and the family has to go somewhere else. But they're yeah. probably not close. Um, so the Even so, I think it is the constant comparisons that is damaging. Like you said, there may be two absolutely viable reasons why these two people are in these two situations. But there, there's no relative comparison. It's apples and oranges. So comparing myself to this person it is damaging and, and means nothing. Karen, go ahead. And, and whether it's the numbers of friends or the cool meals or the cool locations, it's the, what they call FOMO. Yes, of missing out. And so it's like when you compare your shabby life with all this other stuff going on, yes, you're liking on it and you're trying to collect friends and right. of connecting with these people so that your list gets a bit greater, so that ultimately you'll get discovered and someone will pay you to wear their clothing and now you don't have to go to work, you get to be on the internet for your right. job, which is what is a, is a viable, apparently a career path for this exactly. generation, but... It's all about missing out. Somehow, I'm yes. not doing enough. It's not going to happen for me. Exactly. Yes. 
The reason, I think the number one reason is because we don't have Jesus. When you don't have Jesus, you don't have nothing good to say. You know, why you can give something you don't have? And I can see that. I'm a naturopath and people came with a massage and they say they have a lot of stress and mm-hmm. even uh, depression and anxiety. I be, the Lord teaches yep. me to do the anxiety treatment. But they, they empty. And I have friends in, the fa- in, the, in Facebook and also WhatsApp. But I want to talk to them. They only say hi or say... I say, I don't do text. You know, you want to talk to me? Let's go talk. You know, I see superficial love. Yes. And that hurts me. Yeah. Good point. I think it's dangerous. It takes away the ability to use common sense. <laughs> if you, I mean, I'm talking about if you want to Google something, you're in the fire. Common sense to tell you to break a window and get out. But you want to stand there on that computer and Google it. How do I get out of the fire? You're going to kill yourself. Yeah. It takes away the ability to think. Absolutely. I'm kind of concerned that we're, that we're worried about the technology and we're not using the technology properly versus using it improperly. And I see way too many examples of abuse of technology. Now let's go back to when we went from horse and buggy to cars. The same conceptual arguments took place going from horse and buggy to cars. Which girls, we survived making it to cars. We'll eventually make it to rotocopters and whatever, and we'll survive into that. Um, there's good and bad to this technology and how this is used. Um, it's up to you to use it properly and wisely. Totally agree. I mean, the technology we're talking about is the reason why this class is available around the globe right now. So for sure, anything can be abused, anything can be improperly used. But I'm talking about just because this perception of loneliness is just that, it is perception. And I think back when I was in, let's say I was in an academy, we had to put a quarter in a phone to contact anybody. Which we never did, by the way. And there, well, okay. But, and there were no photos. So if I see a picture of my friends out in an event and I wasn't invited, I immediately feel like I'm left out, I'm lonely, and probably something about me that they hate is why they didn't ask me. It likely had nothing to do with that. But back in the day, there were no pictures. If they didn't put a quarter in the phone and call me and say we're out here, I didn't know that they were out without me. I didn't feel lonely. I was fine. So just being made aware, as we are made aware of every single thing everybody does all the time, should they choose to post it, just that awareness creates a feeling of loneliness because they were doing something and I was left out that may not have been there had we not known. To find this lady 10 years dead and there, that's ridiculous, you know. That's a call for us as a Christian Adventist. To me, you know, when I read that, I say, I need to meet more friends with my neighbors. <laughs> yes. Sometimes people say, oh, you are an Adventist. Yes, why you don't tell me? And, and they become an Adventist after somebody else, and, and they were neighbors. It's right. We need to be more friends. You know, I find friends in, in Walmart and in, in, in English yeah. market. We always, we, when you have something to, to say, it's like a Samaritan woman. She was lost in embarrassment because he found Jesus. That's what that spirit we need. Yes. With with all due respect and understanding to your what you're saying in terms of people seeing other postings and 
regretting that they're not in that post yeah. scenario. I don't feel that way. <laughs> People that go on trips, post their pictures on their cruise, I'm happy for them. Right. Go for it. Have fun. Yeah. Frankly, you know, like other feelings on posting stuff while you're not away from home, while you're away from home, from security reasons. <laughs> but it doesn't bother me. Yeah. Maybe I'm an odd duck. Okay, so I've been that way for 60 years. Who cares? But, you know, you want to post your pictures? Have fun. It does. I don't feel bad because you went on a cruise. Right. And I didn't. That's just me. Gotcha. Okay, so we got to move. I got a bunch more statistics and studies here about, I mean, this study was uh, performed by Cigna. And if you know anything about Cigna and what they do and their purpose, they're a health insurance company. And it's no accident that they were performing this study because there are significant health impacts to this epidemic of loneliness. Um, and they're as... Uh, to have as much impact as being obese or smoking 15 cigarettes a day. They're associated with a wide range of health problems, including increased risk for heart attack, stroke, and cancer. Anyway, why is loneliness so destructive? And remember, this has nothing to do with physically being alone. It's because we were designed to be in relationship and in true connection and communion with God and with others. Our memory text this week is from Genesis 2, and it says the Lord saw that it was not good that man should be alone. But this week's lesson looks at this issue of companionship and relationship and aloneness during various phases of life that most of us have likely faced at one time or another, many times not by choice. And I have some quotes that I'm going to try to get through to throughout the lesson that I hope encourage and prove that the God we serve is not foreign to this concept of being alone or feeling lonely. He knows it, he gets it, he understands it. So this, this quote is talking about Christ when he, right after his baptism, as he's coming up out of the water, and it talks about what he's looking forward to in his ministry. It says, upon coming up out of the water, Jesus bowed in prayer on the riverbank. A new and important era was opening up before him. He was now upon a wider stage entering on the conflict of his life. Though he was the prince of peace, his coming must be as the unsheathing of a sword. The kingdom he had come to establish was the opposite of that which the Jews desired. He who was the foundation of the ritual and economy of Israel would be looked upon as its enemy and destroyer. He who had proclaimed the law upon Sinai would now be condemned as, his tra as its transgressor. He who had come to break the power of Satan would be denounced as Beelzebub. No one on earth had understood him, and during his ministry he must still walk alone. Throughout his life, his mother and his brothers did not comprehend his mission. Even his disciples did not understand him. He had dwelt in eternal light, as one with God, but his life on earth must be spent in solitude. Alone he must tread the path. Alone he must bear the burden. Upon him who had laid off his glory and accepted the weakness of humanity, the redemption of the world must rest. He saw and felt it all, but his purpose remained steadfast. Upon his arm depended the salvation of the fallen race, 
and he reached out his hand to grasp the hand of omnipotent love. Yes? You know, there's no one that knows you more than the Lord. And now he's got to go through eternity with so many people that's I know. that will not be saved, that won't come, that won't go to heaven. So, so she's probably the number one person who's, who will be lonely in the universe. Yes. All right, let's look at Sunday's lesson. It's entitled Companionship. So we're asked, what are the basic principles or ideas? Principles. What's another word for principles? Values. Laws. Laws. What are the principles of life being discussed in Ecclesiastes 4, 9 through 12? If somebody has their Bible, would you look up Ecclesiastes 4, 9 through 12? And somebody read it. Shout it out for us. Two people are better than one because together they have a good reward for their hard work. If one falls, the other can help his friend get up. But how tragic it is when, for the one who is all alone when he falls. There is no one to help him get up. Again, if two people lie down together, they can keep warm. But how can one person keep warm by themselves? The one person may be overpowered by another. Two people can resist one opponent. A triple-braided rope is not easily broken. So how many of us here can testify to that concept? Even us introverts, I include myself in that group, who don't mind being alone, maybe even crave it at times, Teresa, (laughs) we still want and need companionship and connection and community. My precious family, both by DNA and adoption, and my dear friends, who might as well be family, have literally saved my life more than once. And a sweet friend right from this class helped pick me up this week. So, uh, indeed, we were made for companionship. We were designed for fellowship with other humans. And we know this by looking at the example of Adam. He walked and talked with God face to face. He was able to draw comfort from that close relationship, but even the closeness of God to Adam in Eden didn't stop the Lord from saying, it is not good that man should be alone. He knew that even with intimate fellowship with God in a world undamaged by sin, that Adam still needed human companionship. So how much more must we need it? Sadly, there are people in our church, in this class, where we work, where we live, who may have no one to turn to, no one to help them up when they fall down, and who may be longing for that companionship and connection. So how many of you have heard of the acronym TGIF? You've heard of that, right? I'm not talking about the restaurant. How many of you have heard of TGIM? The quarterly quotes an unmarried man who says, The hardest day for me is Sunday. During the week, I'm surrounded by people at work. On Sabbath, I see people at church. But on Sunday, I am all alone. TGIM, thank goodness it's Monday, is a well-known phrase among the singles crowd. Weekends are their hardest time. Again, we cannot assume that just because there are a lot of people around that a person cannot be lonely or feel lonely. 
Some of the loneliest people live in big cities. They have multiple interactions with other people, but they still feel alone and isolated and in need of true connection. Another quote, keep cheerful. Do not forget that you have a comforter, the Holy Spirit, which Christ has appointed. You are never alone. If you will listen to the voice that now speaks to you, if you will respond without delay to the knocking at the door of your heart, Come in, Lord Jesus, that I may sup with thee and thee with me. The heavenly guest will enter. When this element, which is all divine, abides with you, there is peace and rest. All right, Monday's lesson. It's titled, The Unmarried Life. Please. It's implied in that, though, that, oh, with the Holy Spirit, then you're complete. You know, and we aren't. Right. Um, And some people are blessed with aloneness, Mm -hmm. and others are blessed with companionship, and some are cursed by companionship. Correct. You know. Yes. So I just think that the, the description of being, oh, the Holy Spirit, you're never alone. That is true, and that is guarded closely to our hearts. Mm-hmm. God is with us at yes. all times, but it's still not the same. Oh, I understand the the tension and the struggle because again, we're to- he's he's everything. He's enough, but as we just saw with Adam, he knew that he wasn't enough. It's the reason for Eve and. It is. It's a constant struggle for those of us who spend a lot of time alone and long maybe to not be. And is that an admission that God's not enough? I get that. It, it comes to my mind, Second Peter, chapter 1, verses 5 to 10. I call it the ladder of Peter. So the Holy Spirit is not going to be complete until you have the fruits of the Holy Spirit. Mm. I, I want you to read that, Second Peter. And it really helped me a lot because you kind of peace, you know, and, and you, you have all of these steps, steps, you know, the fruit of the Holy Spirit. We do need to have the Spirit, but not just by, by saying or by thinking, but yeah. actually. Sure. Yeah. Teresa, then Karen. I know it's per situation because after my divorce, I brought three kids up by myself and I value. I absolutely love my time alone. Because it's when God talks to me. He's taught me everything. He taught me how to raise three kids by myself. Mm-hmm. He walked through with me for everything. Love being married. But being married, I don't have the quiet time with God yeah. that I used to have. Or things like that. Mm-hmm. And I crave, I crave quiet time. Nobody yep. around. I get it. God. It's wonderful. Yeah. Go ahead, Karen. Well, I kind of feel like when you say the Holy Spirit, it's, and I think it's... Someone said about the fruits of the Spirit. It's, I mean, you're only alone as much as you want to be. Exactly. You might not have what you've set up as being the ideal, but there's someone in yes. the shape than you are. There's someone in the same shape as you are. You need to get out, get on your mission, and start care of other people. You develop gratitude. You develop yes. empathy. Other people, you... You become you know, entwined in mm-hmm. society when you get out and start doing the right thing. That's fruits of the Spirit. Absolutely. You know, love, joy, peace, and all those things. So it's not just this ethereal, the Holy Spirit's with me, therefore I'm no longer alone. Absolutely. 
and I'll, I mean, I'll talk about it. We're getting ready to talk about the unmarried life. And at the end, I have not necessarily pieces of advice. It's just from my experience. I find that there are two kind of tendencies. If you do spend a lot of time by yourself, there is a tendency, at least for me, to struggle with self-sufficiency. And, I mean, there is nobody else to give stuff to, to give tasks to, to take care of. So you definitely get in the mode of taking care of everything yourself, which gets you in the mode of not being as dependent as you could be or should be on God, because you're used to not depending on anybody. And it's even considered a sign of weakness, or we figure there's a contest, and the person who asks for help the least wins. I don't know why why that is. But the other, besides self-sufficiency, is just literally self-focused. If you are with yourself all the time, Focus tends to be on self, and we're already tending towards selfishness. So I guarantee you the best way to get out of feeling lonely or sorry for yourself is to get out and help someone else. Focus your energies on somebody else. Love is outward moving. You will not. First of all, if you're comparing yourself to everybody, you will all of a sudden feel like you're in a great position. And... It's just, it just changes everything. You will not think about your own situation at all when you're in the act of loving benevolently to others. They just can't exist. They can't coexist. There were more. Wendell. So when Adam was created, he was not created incomplete. Correct. He was a complete individual. But you can serve others better when you are working with someone else. Yes. And your focus is better. And love is only, it only works. Its definition is that it's outward moving. And if there is no one for it to move outward on, then it's not, it's not even really love. We've had a big discussion here about law. Yes. And understand that. But I think the best thing that has been described in this class is the concept of love. Yes. Love is not as portrayed through many different ways. Right other than the, the unselfish seeking of the best interest of, of the other. Yes. You know? God was never alone. There's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Yep. I mean, there's three, not even... Exactly. That was our model. Yes. If you do all of those things, but at the end of the day, you go back home, what happens when that wears off? You still feeling alone in the same shape. I would say in my experience, it doesn't wear off. It is that feeling because inevitably I am, I feel more blessed than the person that I tried to bless. And that is as much of a dopamine rush or an addiction as anything that's harmful. And I want it again. You know what I'm saying? And don't get me wrong. There are, There's work that has to be done in myself. I think about Paul's text where I have learned to be content whatever state I'm in. He had a bunch of people. He was by himself. He was free. He was in prison. He was well. He was sick. He learned whatever state he's in to be content. And I, I, I don't know if I would call it a skill, but it's definitely a gift of the Holy Spirit that you can learn to be content whatever phase, whatever state you're in knowing that it is very likely temporary because everything on this earth is and that you're just moving from one phase to the next and he has something for you 
or something to teach you or something to grow in you in every single phase. Yes. Imagine that you are the Samaritan woman. She don't have no friends because she used to be hanging with the merry men. You know, now she's going to get the water alone in the middle mm-hmm. of the day because she don't know. She don't have no friends. Yeah. Think about how terrible her life was. And Jesus was already seeing that, like he sees, sure. uh, you know, Nathaniel. Nathaniel was praying on the bottom of the tree, and Jesus was, see? So Jesus had an appointment with that woman. And what about today? Jesus had an appointment with each of us. Each today. of us, yes. And think about now, after you leave from here, talk about people about this meeting thing. I told everybody that I talked to Shannon. Mm-hmm. I said, read the book. And some people look it because the Lord used each of us, so yeah. we need to be more communicated. So the Samaritan woman become healed. Yes. That's what we need to do. And she became an evangelist. Yeah. Actually, after my divorce 20 years ago, the, the well, Satan or whoever, they take my idol away because she was my idol. Yes. I still love her. I never married 20 years. And uh, I'm glad the Lord gave it to me, my son. I raised him. But I have more time with the Lord now. I said, Jesus, I'm not going to give my heart anybody. You're going to be the next one. I have more time now. Yeah, I'm not going to read it, but if you look in Friday's lesson, uh, there is a quote from Mrs. White, and it talks about the um, just the experience of Enoch, who walked and talked with God, and it talks about how he purposefully spent time alone, and this was how he was able to grow so close to the Lord that he was translated. Um, anyway... That's that's some encouragement and some reason. I mean, we have the life of Christ as a model. He repeatedly took himself away from the crowds and even away from the disciples to spend time alone with God. So there's nothing unhealthy, per se, about being alone. All right, so we want to talk about the unmarried life. And like I said, if you read the other day's lessons, this is really the never married life. Because you can be unmarried because you got divorced or you can be unmarried because your spouse died. This is the never married uh, life. And the second paragraph says, most people think that being married is God's will for them, primarily because of our memory text from Genesis 2. Do you think that most people believe that? And is, is it God's will that people be married? If you look at the stats from the millennial generation, this does not hold true. I come from up north, and Southern is known as the place to come and get married. Oh, FMC was Southern Matrimonial College, yeah, it's... And they got a pretty good track record, I got to tell you. Um, so I personally believe that it's God's will that his people be healed and restored and transformed back into Christ's likeness. That's his will. And there may be situations in the bounds of a healthy marriage relationship where that can happen more effectively and efficiently, and it can be beneficial to both individuals and their children and their families, etc. But there are other situations... <clears throat> where healing and restoration can be obstructed or sabotaged by an unhealthy relationship or a dysfunctional marriage? And is it necessarily God's will for that person to be married? Don't get me wrong. God can certainly save and heal and restore marriages and relationships. It's literally what he does. But if he has to choose between saving you and your spouse and saving your marriage, I believe he chooses you. So the quarterly refers to 1 Corinthians 7, 25 through 34 and asks us to discuss all the good reason Paul gives for remaining unmarried. I'm sure this is a familiar text to y'all. I'm reading it out of the remedy. And it says, regarding those who are single, 
I have not been given any direction from the Lord, but I will share my personal opinion as one who, by the Lord's mercy, has your best interest at heart and is therefore trustworthy. Because of the present crisis the church is facing, it is my opinion that it would be best for you to remain as you are. If you are married, do not seek a divorce, and if you are single, don't look for a spouse. If you do marry, you have not sinned, but marriage brings many new stressors and responsibilities, such as children. So those of you who are have been married, does marriage bring many new stressors and responsibilities? Yeah. And given the current crisis the church is facing, I want to spare you as many problems as possible. What I want you to understand is that we have a mission and the time to complete it is limited. So don't let your spouse distract you from fulfilling God's purpose for your life. Don't get stuck in grief, but realize that when we have fulfilled our mission, Christ will return and grief will turn to joy. If you are happy in this world, then open your eyes to God's reality and become unhappy with the world. Use your resources to fulfill God's mission and not indulge self. Don't get engrossed or preoccupied with the world's entertainment, politics, or agendas because the world as we know it will soon be gone. I want you to be free from the worries, stresses, and anxieties of this world so that you can be most effective in God's cause. A single man can focus all his energies on fulfilling the Lord's work, but a married man has responsibilities to his wife and his family and his energies are divided. An unmarried woman can focus all her all her energies on fulfilling the Lord's work and devote her entire self to God's cause. But a married woman has responsibilities to her husband and her family. I am not placing any restrictions upon you, but sharing this wisdom for your good so that you may decide how to live your lives completely devoted to the Lord. Any thoughts on that? That's confusing. <laughs> What's confusing? Do it, don't do it. Six in one hand is half a dozen in the other. Well, again, this is the same person that wrote, speak the truth in love and leave people free, and that every person should be fully persuaded in their own mind. And he's giving his opinion as a person who obviously decided to not get married and to vote himself entirely to God's cause. Yes, Wendell. I think the important issue there is that he was writing in response to questions. Yes. Okay. So. What should we do? I'm often tempted to give advice where I wasn't invited. And, um, Always. <laughs> my wife has this little statement that says, not my circus, not my monkeys. Yes. It, it's, it's hard to remember that. It is. Yeah. So you're right. He was He was responding to questions of advice. What should we do? How should we handle this? Yethra. Um, you know, a lot has to do with the, the background of what was going on during yes. the period. If, you know, if you think of these folks, they literally thought that they were in the last days, that, that, that the return of Christ was going to come very shortly. Right. And they were, um, you know, if you think of it in that way, I mean, to give you kind of an example, I grew up in a very conservative small church in upstate New York, and the concept that I had when I went through a Revelation seminar there was that the Lord was coming soon. Yeah. In my in my mind, it was not Imminent. more than five minutes, five years. Mm-hmm. So we were a young family trying to consider: Do we have a family? Yeah. And the thoughts that you have in your mind is, you know, pray that my my flight is not on the Sabbath or when my wife is pregnant. 
You know, so you, you have these, these conditionings that are yeah. happening in your mind, thinking to yourself, would I want to bring a child into this, this world? Now, you know, 30 years, 20 years, 30 years later, we've we got children that are, you know, so thankful that we, we made right. the decision to do right. so. But the, um, the imminence, you know, so the, the council, I believe, was based on the situation at Absolutely. the time. And, and when you look at that in context, it helps to clear up so much in this group. Absolutely. All right, so we oh, some more stuff that I really want to get to. Let me read this quote because I think it's encouraging. At all times and in all places, in all sorrows and in all afflictions, when the outlook seems dark and the future perplexing and we feel helpless and alone, the comforter will be sent in answer to the prayer of faith. Circumstances may separate us from every earthly friend, but no circumstance, no distance can separate us from the heavenly comforter. Wherever we are, wherever we may go, he is always at our right hand to support, sustain, uphold, and cheer. All right, so let's move to Tuesday's lesson. It talks about when a marriage ends. I found the first paragraph funny. It suggests that the phrase dysfunctional family is basically redundant, since every family is to some degree dysfunctional. And isn't that the truth? It also mentions the degree to which family has been attacked and has in many ways borne the brunt of the devastating consequences of this earthly infection of fear and selfishness. Besides death, one of the toughest things a family can experience is divorce. I'm guessing that those of you in this room who've experienced it, which, if we go by the statistics, is at least half of you, you can testify and confirm that that's true. And in fact, it, in many ways, it is a sort of death. It produces that wide range, the entire gamut of emotions from shock to sadness and grief to anger to guilt and shame to relief to fear and anxiety. And there are so many things to fear. You've got the unknown, the unfamiliar, financial worries, potential harm and damage to the children, even your impact, the impact on your salvation. And of course, many do also experience depression, loneliness, The verses listed there in the middle of Tuesday's lesson are the main references to divorce in all of Scripture. There are a couple more in Exodus and Deuteronomy, and then there are parallels of the Matthew text in Mark as well. And the lesson asks, what broad principles concerning divorce can we gather from the following verses? What's the most common proclamation about divorce in the Bible that you think people quote? God hates divorce. God hates divorce. The only reason for divorce is fornication, but I don't think that people know the full definition of fornication. Right. The issue is we often misread that. God doesn't hate divorced people. Correct. And why does he hate divorce? Because it harms us. He hates all deviations from his perfect design. Yes. Uh, it was pointed out in a, a class I was at once that God actually refers to himself as a divorcee. He actually about stated that, that he, he would give Israel a writ of divorce because they, he kept longing for Israel, but Israel kept rejecting him. And finally he said, fine, you can have it your way. Yes. That's what I would desire. And I think it broke God's heart. Of course it did. That's why God says, I hate divorce. I think any person who has been through the pain of divorce or separation or whatever would say, I hate it. I hate it. Yes. 
pain would not wish it on your worst enemy. So much as the pain that it causes. This in this is a paragraph we can't get to, but I've been telling you all morning. God understands you. He gets you. But how could he identify or relate to your broken marriage? Well, he is divorced. He loved Israel. He proposed to Israel. He made vows to Israel and entered into a covenanted relationship with them. But repeatedly in the Old Testament, God talks about the Israelites' adultery against him. And because of her waywardness and unfaithfulness to him, God declares in Jeremiah 3.8 that he gave Israel a certificate of divorce. So thank you for bringing that up. Um, I also wanted to do a shameless plug. I facilitate a group up at Collegedale Community Church called Life After Divorce. And it's an eight or nine week study that goes in depth into these five texts that reference divorce in the Bible. And if you want to know more about that, see me or contact Collegedale Community for the next session. I mean, it's, it's really life-changing. And it, but it talks about why does he hate divorce? And if he hates it so bad, why did he institute it? And in some minds, sanction it. He came up with it. He told Moses how to do it. Because the, the alternatives were so much worse. So the alternatives were so much. And who was he dealing with? He was dealing with darkness covered the people, gross darkness the people. The, what they were doing to people, particularly women, was not loving. It was destructive. And even outside of his design, he's always going to move you toward the most loving thing, the most merciful thing. And this was, this was an act of mercy. So I went and wanted to, to read a little bit. Let's see. Right, so he hates all deviations from his perfect design, which of course is why he hates divorce. He hates damage to his children. And divorce, I think, got singled out so specifically because we have to remember this whole great controversy thing is not about us. We have a critical role to play. We are key evidence. We're exhibit A and exhibit B. But God created humans in his image so that they could reveal truth about him. He designed marriage to demonstrate godlike love. Divorce is the outworking of selfishness, and it occurs when loves breaks down and hearts harden. Because divorce results in pain and injury to his children, God hates divorce. However, what God detests even more than divorce is the destruction and eternal loss of his children. Marriages that perpetuate, perpetually violate love and liberty are gross counterfeits of the benevolent principles of God's character. Such marriages masquerade as bastions of love, all the while misrepresenting him and destroying both the husband and the wife. The third and fourth paragraph in Tuesday's lesson are quotes from the Seventh-day Adventist Church Manual. And the last sentence in paragraph three states, when a couple's marriage is in danger of breaking down, Every effort should be made by the partners and those in the church or family who minister to them to bring about their reconciliation in harmony with divine principles for restoring wounded relationships. What divine principles might those be? Perhaps the law of love, the law of liberty. Respect. Respect. And if you attend this session, you may hear... Things that are different that are written in the Seventh-day Adventist Church Manual. I'll just tell you that. So Dr. Jennings' book, Could It Be This Simple, contains a chapter on shadow people. It's chapter 6. And there's a section in there called Marriage and the Law of Liberty. Unfortunately, many good people suffer ignorantly within marriages that cruelly violate the laws of love and liberty. 
believing they are required to stay in such destructive situations. But God has never required this. His purpose for us has only and always been our healing and restoration. Therefore, he desires our separation from everything that interferes with his working in our lives. Marriage relationships that cause or allow freedom, individuality, and autonomy to erode will result in the destruction of the image of God within. And if freedom is not restored, one's fitness for heaven will be ruined. It is one of Satan's most subtle traps. When love and freedom cannot be restored within the marriage, when staying in the marriage results in individuals being so dominated and controlled that it erases their individuality and autonomy, then they have a God-given responsibility to extricate themselves from such destructive relationships. So, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that God's a proponent of divorce. Don't send Francesca emails. I am saying it's not the worst thing that can happen. Your individuality being destroyed, your fitness for heaven being ruined and being lost is the worst thing that can happen. God yes. is not being a proponent of divorce, as, as you just stated. He is being a proponent of self-respect and, and respecting the other person and he, he, he doesn't want any of us to be injured. Exactly. And I have this friend that I actually begged to get out of a relationship simply because it was so destructive yes. to her and her children. And, and it wasn't going to change. And it was, you know, so, so there are times you have to get out for self-preservation. God does not want us to kill ourselves in a relationship either. And I would posit that it is, it is destructive to the spouse as well. Yes. And again, so leaving an abusive relationship and not allowing the abuser to further damage his character by continuing to abuse you is a loving act. If that makes sense. Yes. Very much. All right. So ugh, time is almost up, but I wanted to read the last lesson. Uh, thir Wednesday's lesson, Death and Loneliness, was really the last one I was going to go over. And based on the, the precious email that I read at the beginning of class, I'm just going to finish and read, um, read a quote. And it says, The children of God are not left alone and defenseless. Prayer moves the arm of omnipotence. Prayer has subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions and quenched the violence of fire. If we surrender our lives to his service, we can never be placed in a position for which God has not made provision. Whatever may be our situation, we have a guide to direct our way. Whatever our perplexities, we have a sure counselor. Whatever our sorrow, bereavement, or loneliness, we have a sympathizing friend. If in our ignorance we make missteps, Christ does not leave us. His voice, clear and distinct, is heard saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Not one sincere prayer is lost. Amid the anthems of celestial choir, God hears the cries of the weakest human being. We pour out our heart's desire in our closets. We breathe a prayer as we walk by the way, and our words reach the throne of the monarch of the universe. They may be inaudible to any human ear, but they cannot die away into silence nor can they be lost through the activities of business that are going on. 
Nothing can drown out the soul's desire. It rises above the din of the street, above the confusion of the multitude to the heavenly courts. It is God to whom we are speaking, and our prayer is heard. Let's bow our heads. Father, again, we pray for the Dieter family, and we just pray that you would outpour your love and your Holy Spirit on them, surround them with strength and comfort, um, and as well as, as on the people who, who are supporting them. Uh, we pray for traveling mercy, mercies for Tim and Christy. We pray for their strength and courage and endurance and immune systems. Um, pray that they come back here to us safely. We pray your blessing on this class and on everyone in this room. And that's our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.